Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. Happy spring, Bill. <laughs> yes, it feels spring-like. Yeah, we are recording on the first the first week of spring-ish. So notice the light's been a little better than it has been in the past. A little, little brighter in the late afternoon. And, uh, and, and earlier in the morning. Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so um yeah so we're we're doing a a our first of the spring podcast and we have a kind of an interesting topic today with a couple very interesting special guests but that's uh bill sutton's voice at the top of the podcast hi bill hi annette i'm bill sutton i'm the managing editor of the express news group and i'm annette hankel and i'm the arts and living editor of the express news group and also joining us today are a couple um, other people from our office first of all is gavin manu publisher extraordinaire of the express news group Hiya, Gavin. Good morning, Annette. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. And also with us is Nick Thomas. And Nick is the CFO of the Express News Group. Um, And Nick is joining us for a very interesting reason. But first, say hello, Nick. Good morning, Annette. Bill, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, good morning, Nick. And we also have you. We have you here because of the gentleman sitting next to you, who is the real star of this podcast. And uh, this is Carl Johnson. And Carl is head basketball coach of the Bridgehampton Killer Bees. And Carl was finally inducted into the New York State Basketball Hall of Fame recently um, up in Glens Falls. So how are you, Carl? I'm well. Good morning. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for thanks for coming in today. So, Gavin, I figured you're more of a, a basketball aficionado than I am, um, and that I figured I'd let you jump in here and you can uh, kind of take this conversation away. Absolutely. Uh, not just an aficionado. I absolutely love basketball. And, you know, I've been following these two guys for quite some time. Yeah. So just a little bit of history. A lot of our readers and listeners know about the Bridgehampton basketball team. Smallest school, maybe in all of New York State, at least competing at the basketball level and uh, with with tremendous success, nine state championships. And Carl was part of uh, those as a player and as a coach right in the late 70s and 1980, won three state championships, Class D state championships as a player, and then went on to become the head coach where I believe it was four more state championships, right, as a coach. So, and Nick was was, uh, Nick was on one of those teams as a point guard and um, the basketball hall of fame up in Glens Falls, uh, obviously New York state has tremendous basketball history and uh, some, some of the biggest names in the sport, right. That, that, that ever coached or played. And uh, just, um, you know, we, we got a story in this week's paper. It, it, it was delayed a little bit right by the pandemic, but Carl finally got to go up to Glens Falls. So, you know, I just thought it'd be a good idea to, to hear his voice and, I know it was a bit of a humbling experience, Carl, right, to be in the in the same breath as some of those people. And um, just tell us a little bit about what it was like to be up uh, up in Glens Falls, a place you're very familiar with, and um, and and to get that honor for really a, a, a tremendous career. Well, you know, like you said before, it was very humbling uh, experience for me. Uh, you know, I got into coaching, but I didn't get into coaching to try to be a Hall of Fame coach. <laughs> I just went there. I, I wanted the, my players to feel that that same energy that I felt and that excitement of winning the championship. 
And then I was fortunate enough to have good players on my team and that believed in my philosophy and believed in the teamwork in order to achieve a championship. But then when I stood up there amongst the other 13 inductees and I looked around the room and I said to myself, wow, this is very humbling. This is very <laughs> humbling and exciting at the same time. So I was very thrilled to be there. And, um, you know, I was very nervous when I got up there to do my speech. But then just like in basketball, you're nervous before the tip ball. But then once the ball is tossed, you just get into your comfort zone. So, no, it was a great weekend. Um, I was truly appreciative for everyone that came and supported me far and near. So, so you know, one of the things I'm always been amazed about is just the the size of the Bridgehampton School. It's a fairly small school, and and you guys just always do really really well um, at the basketball tournaments. I wondered if you could talk about about how Bridgehampton has become such a powerhouse when it comes to the sport of basketball over the years. I mean, I think so. Being a small school sometimes have that advantage where you see kids. Well, I remember when I was in third grade and I went to a varsity game and probably had one of the best seats in the house, which was not saying much because the gym was very small at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you you go there and you watch the games and you went every you went twice a week, you know, regardless. And then all of a sudden you had that love and passion for the game and you couldn't wait to wear that black and gold uniform and go out in that lineup. And then when. Rich Hampton, of course, the basketball team was our team. It wasn't the New York Knicks or any other professional team. It was Rich Hampton basketball. So we had that close bond with the team and the players actually paid attention to us, you know. And uh, so when they lost, I cried, they cried, but we cried even more. And, and I, I know I, to myself, I made a commitment saying, well, when I get to that age, I'm going to make up for this, you know, for that their losses. You know, I think that's what generated that tradition going forward. Not just only me with that same dream, but like, you know, like Nick, uh, guys before him and like Detroit Bowles and Julian Johnson. We all had that same passion. We couldn't wait to wear that uniform. So I think that's where the advantage goes, where in the larger school, sometimes that doesn't happen. There's obviously been that great community connection, and I just want to bring Nick in because uh, Nick has got some coaching experience of his own. He was the he was the former Center Bridge's varsity coach, and I remember right before the pandemic, he was on the verge of taking that team upstate and and had a very good team. But Nick, just tell us a little bit about playing for Bridgehampton, what your experience was in playing for Coach, and um, you know what it was like for you growing up in this in the school. If you had the same experience. Uh, and just what it was like um, playing for Carl and and reaching that pinnacle of the game. For me, you know, just to piggyback off of what Coach said, you know, it was about the tradition, carrying on the legacy. And, you know, being from a small town, everyone's pretty much related, you know. So it was also a matter of keeping up with the family tradition. There was bragging rights. We had to live up to the standard. Being a 90s graduate, you know, I had so many who paved the way before me. And that was one of the great things about Coach. He never let us lose sight of where it came from. You know, we paid homage to, as he said, you know, from, 70s. you know, yeah, Donna Harney and uh, Mike Jackson, you know, Ricky Hobson, and the guys you play with, the O'Neill brothers, and 
Wayne and them to, you know, Andre and Troy and Drew Baby and Bobby, my cousin Lamont, and, you know, just his name's going to go on and on. And um, i never forget, we were um, coming off of uh, our junior high season playing for Coach Hartwell. And, you know, shout out to Coach Hartwell because he also taught his team ball. And Coach Johnson, that was our time to be play for champion basketball and showcase ourselves. But we were in eighth grade just running around the school, you know, waiting to get the varsity level. And we had a dislike for the varsity players because we were so tempted <laughs> and ready. You know, <laughs> we went to practices every day and watched and we were at the center every day. They would, you know, make us earn our time just to get picked up and pick up ball. And that was the tradition and that fire that, you know, was instilled in us. So by the time the games come, it was just like we were ready to go, you know, and just make our mark. Um, so that year we first won the championship, coach's first championship in 1996. And Bobby was our assistant coach, you know, Bobby Hobson, which had a great, you know, Wagner, Hall of Famer. He didn't win one as a player, but he did everything else practically in the Bridgehaven uniform, but he didn't win a state championship. So we almost dedicated it also to Bobby. And um, that was probably one of the more fulfilling aspects of it, to just bring along somebody who had paved the way and also have them there with us to celebrate it. And uh, we couldn't have did it without Bobby. It seems to me that it's like the mentorship is what is really unique about Bridgehampton. You know, I guess that's the beauty of a small school um, is that, you know, you like you were saying, um, Carl, that you grow up watching the older players and then when you get up to that point, it's just like this club that you just have to be a part of and you just really striving to be a part of it. Um, and I, I wondered if you feel like mentorship has been a big role for you in terms of your career in basketball. It has been like, um, you know, so I look back at the history of all the coaches. Now, I have only known when I was a player, there were, and we talk about consistency and the mentorship, there was Coach Weaver, then Coach Golden came, and you know, um, then John Niles, and then myself. So over the last probably what six decades, we really haven't had that many coaches, and mm. and most of those coaches were like great mentors and and showed us the way and steadied the ship even those i mean our players also fed into that you know we were like we were disciplined people didn't think we were that disciplined but we were so disciplined on that court we had a we had our goals and we were going to meet those goals at all costs and and i'm saying where we challenge each other on on the court we challenged our peers. If you were late for practice, the coach didn't really have to say anything because the coach already had set that standard. And we expect every one of our teammates to meet those standards or, or they're going to have to deal with us. Or we're saying no more, no longer. You're not. This is not what Bridgeham basketball is all about. It's not Bridgeham killer B basketball or Bridgey basketball, as they say. So the mentorship was very important. And I can tell you this right now, when I won my first State title. I didn't have to say much to these guys. Nick was a captain. I didn't have to say much to them. They knew what the, what was expected of them, and they wasn't going to expect anything less from me, any outside interference, or their own teammates they held accountable. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. 
in these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. Yeah, Nick, you talked about the family aspect. I mean, you, 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 one of your teammates was, was Maurice Manning, who was one of the great players of all time. And the last championship in Bridgehampton in 2015 was led by Charles Manning, Maurice's uh, son. So, you know, not only is it a small community, uh, a small school district, but but those family connections, which how, how much of that influence Bridgehampton? I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but in terms of the sustaining, I mean, Carl, you won your first championship as a player in 78. Right. right. And then uh, 2015. So you're talking about 37 years later. Uh, how do you sustain that that level of commitment? And in such a small school, I mean, what what is Bridgehampton right now? Maybe a hundred a hundred kids, top to bottom. Yeah. So so you know, talk a little bit about that family connection and just the the community and how how you sustain that over time. For us, I think you know one of the things that goes over gets overlooked in the mix of all the hoopla that we have um, as the program. There's always been more or less first cousins or brothers that you can go through the lineage from every decade. I think you play with brothers in the O'Neills. I played at O'Neills and uh, the O'Neills and the Hobsons. And then, of course, the Johnsons. And, and it just, the tree just grows. Right. And then we're coaching, you right. know, we're coaching house. Coach Niles, who was like our father figure to a lot of the kids in the neighborhood. And, you know, he had his son playing. His wife was sometimes a scorekeeper or the cheerleading coach. So every family has a hand into the situation. Uh, and that was Julian and Troy who were brothers. Yeah. You know, just going along and carrying the lineage. And the families in itself, you know, every family in Bridgehampton, there was somebody who had a hand, you know, from that family tree who made a mark. Um, so it just goes on and on in that sense. But that sense of pride and tradition, you know, it never graduates, as they say. Every year wasn't a state championship year. And and when and when you're drawing from from uh high school kids, maybe an eighth grader here and there. What were some of the challenging times? I mean, uh, and probably some of your hardest coaching years. I mean, you look even now, um, you know, the 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 team in, in the last 10 years sometimes hasn't been able to field the varsity team because of the population size, which just makes what you guys accomplished that much more incredible. But what were some of those challenging years in a small district where you're just trying to get five guys on the floor to, to compete, much less win a state championship? Well, that was the hardest part. That was the most challenging part because – Sometimes you have to pick an eighth grader to come up, and he wasn't. He might have been physically ready, but psychologically he wasn't ready. But we had to throw some in there. We had no JV, so we would have to go through that whole from grades eight to twelve. We had to make sure we try to fill, like at least I wanted at least twelve guys. That's ideal for me. But like sometimes we only had seven or eight, you know, because of injuries or because of sickness or because of. You know, academic, you know, problems or whatever issues the kids had on the outside. Um, 
So that was the most challenging thing. But then, you know what? We even grew even tighter as a family because you're like, okay, we still have a common goal. And even if there was five or six, seven kids that were on the team, they still wanted to win the state title. And they always truly believe in it. Now, even if we didn't do it, they still believe. And they couldn't, if they were coming back for their senior year, they still believe that they could win the state title. So, you know, just to uh, elaborate on what Coach was saying, uh, my junior year, we finished the season with, you know, with six players. And now six men was a kid who had just moved into the community who, from a foreign country who didn't speak English very much at the time, you know, Javik Khan. But I mean, he was a great human being, great teammate. Um, we went on to win the small schools championship. You know, we upset Riverhead, who was, you know, also Glen Falls down that year and one of the number one ranked large schools in the country in, in the state and, and Northport as well. Um, we did lose at the buzzer, you know, to go to Glen Falls. And of course, right after that in the locker room, we just talked about getting to the center the next day and, and starting next season. It was just no denial at that point, you know. And we did that, and we won it my senior year. Um, and that was the first of the three P, you know, for coach. Me personally, I think my '96 team was the best team. I got to make sure I say that. That's another conversation. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Yeah, no. Let, let, let's have that conversation. Now. Uh, so, so there, there was there was your teams, Carl, of course, uh, that that you played for, and then there was Nick's '96 team, and then he graduated, and then and then really Maurice and and his team took took the stage for a couple more years, and then you had the 2015 team, which was you know all those years later. So, talk a little bit about the different eras of of, of greatness and and how those teams might have been different, and. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot to pick a favorite or name name the best team, but uh, let's hear a little bit about the about the different areas. Okay, of course I'm going to be biased and say you know my run as a player was probably the best. You know I would say my '79 team was has to be talked about as one of the best teams at Virginia High School. We were deep. We were 12 deep. Uh, six man was our lead score for a long time for the part most part of the season. Um, you know, um, the, Nick said the seventies, the ninety six team was really good, and they were. They were probably my best defensive team, and I say the ninety seven team was probably better than them. But I'll let Nick elaborate on that one. <laughs> the thousand fifteen team, they they just happened to be my last championship team, so I love them to the death. And, and most of their uncles and cousins played for me, so. Here I am, and I had no, I had some clue, but it didn't really, reality didn't hit until we won the championship. And someone's like, you know, Charles Manning, father played. Yes, uh, Josh Lamison, uncle played for you. And I'm like, hold up. And I look at the team, I'm like, I coach every one of their cousins or nephews or fathers. I was like, uncles, I'm like, wow. They were busy back in the day. <laughs> Look, you know, I'm, as a competitor, I'm not going to budge on my 96 team. We'll definitely beat the 97 team. They just had nobody to handle the ball. And Maurice cancels himself out. So they had nobody else for us. But uh, in the mix of all that are the 80s teams, mm -hmm. right? You know, you talk about the great 80s teams. Probably after 79, was it 85, 85 86? 
Totally. Coach can talk about the 86 and the 80s teams, you know, with some of those legends. Well, I mean, you're talking about Troy Bow and uh, the Dow Hemmings and Ron Golson. Uh, Troy, of course, went to Hawaii and probably is going to go down as one of the best point guards ever come out of Bridgeham. You know, I even, I, I would challenge him, of course, on that one, but uh, he's definitely had that kind of talent. And they had, once again, you're talking about that family. Everybody on their team was related or played in someone's backyard or driveway. Um, so the 86 team was loaded. With, they were the deepest, by the way. Yeah, they were deep and they were loaded. And they kind of breezed through their state title pretty much. So, <laughs> so Carl, you think your team was the best and Nick thinks his team is the best. So that that basically sums that up. <laughs> but, but but one of the great things about sports is all those stories and the, the behind the scenes, you know, and and growing up in Bridgehampton, Nick mentioned the, the, the center, the Bridgehampton Child Care Center, which still plays an important role in the community. And I would be remiss by not pointing out that uh, just a couple days ago, my daughter plays for the eighth grade uh, Springs basketball team. And uh, we had a game at Bridgehampton, and I looked over to see who the head coach was of the Bridgehampton Middle School girls basketball team, and it was Carl. <laughs> and, uh, and, and and he told me that he, that he got the itch again for playing basketball. But I think it's really that I think it's really that community connection. And um, you know, the Bridgehampton community uh, did sort of you know the, the center was that heartbeat, and uh, it maintains that today. You know, can you talk a little bit about that, Carl, about what that, you know, growing up in the community was like for you as a, as a child and what it translates to towards today, where you still have that itch to get back out there and coach basketball in whatever whatever form it is? Well, like growing up as a little boy, uh, you know, everybody would meet at the child care center at the school or on the weekends. You'll meet at the child care center. That's where you kind of really earn your, your strike. You know, I, as a little boy, thought I was good enough to be out there against some of the older guys that I saw play. Like Nick said, he went to see the varsity play in eighth grade. He's like, yeah, I can play against these. I said the same thing. I'm sitting out there. Here I am sitting there waiting for someone to pick me. Didn't get picked. I didn't get discouraged. They didn't discourage me at all. I was just like, okay, someone's going to pick me. I waited hours and hours. Didn't get picked. Go back the next day, same thing. And then one day... Um, I thought I had earned that scrape. So there was they didn't have enough guys. So I was a tenth player pick. I did. I thought I did very well. <laughs> My team was winning. Uh, the next day I go back. I was like, Oh, I'm sure I'm going to get picked this time. No, <laughs> it was just like to them. It's like no one else show. We know you can handle it, but you still had to earn the scrapes. And I think everyone had to go through that step. But it taught you. It didn't discourage you. It just said, I just got to work harder. I have to prove myself. And I think that's where people get mixed up sometimes these days. Like, it's not it, just because you fail or you didn't get picked doesn't mean you uh like less of a human being or less of a player. It just means you got to work harder and earn the trust of the guys that are in charge. Because that, you know, it's the, that food chain. <laughs> you got to learn how to get up there and just, you know, uh, Earn your scrape. That's it. You know, you know, like I said, never discourage me. They they didn't even, they was like, wow, you're too little. Or they said, you're too little. You're not ready. But you go out there and you show them, I can play. But you still had to earn that scrape. And that kept that fire burning in you. So no matter if I played against someone from Pearson or East Hampton or from Sachem, I already know 
I can play against you, and that's not I'm not intimidated by you at all and stuff. So I don't know what Nick had to say about that one. No, I I mean, listen, I it, it, the standard never changed. If anything, it might have got a little harder because they always felt we were a little softer, you know, as as the time went along. Um, I'll never forget, you know, uh Dow Hemby, who another British have been great. He uh he would pull me to the side every day. And I had to play him one-on-one, you know, at one point. And, you know, I was 13, 14 years old. He was a grown man, you know, 20 years old. And uh, I could never score. I could never win. And that was my only way of being able to get on this team and get picked. You know, and they did that to a lot of us. So you had to challenge yourself. And the mental toughness, you had to take it. You know, you had to come back every day and show up. And you had to pay your dues and work hard, as Coach said. And, um and the more importantly, it also instilled in us when the time came, you know, to show up. You had to show up when the lights got bright and and show out. So that instilled that fire in us. And, you know, it was just a replica, you know, in the sense of uh, what our tradition was about. You know, we showed up on all the big stages, you know, and we were the giant slayers. You know, there's so many stories. Um, <laughs> That you just you just can't kind of fathom, you know, uh, what the mystique is all about, you know. Um, and as much as we talk about it to other people, you know, living it and going through it, it's just so different. You know, we have alumni group chats today. We just go back and forth about the stories and the competitive nature. So, you know, that's something that we cherish. But that's what, you know, coming from the Bridgeham family is all about. Hi, this is Michael Wright. I'm a reporter for the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27East.com. I cover East Hampton Town and follow important stories about the environment, including the coming South Fork Wind Farm, its impact on the fishing industry, and other water quality issues. We follow East Hampton Town and village government, and I'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers. My colleagues and I in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community, but we can't do it without our subscribers. If you find the work we're doing valuable to you, please subscribe by visiting 27East.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you very much. So can I ask a question? I've, I I just, I love the old beehive and I know you guys did too. And now there's a beautiful right. new gym where basketball is played. I wonder if you could talk about the emotions of playing in that beautiful old beehive, which is now being used as an auditorium and other things and having the new space, which I'm sure is great, but at the same time, probably sort of bittersweet for you who have all those memories of that cool old space. Well, I, for one, was very upset about it. Mm-hmm. I did not want them to touch that gym. Uh, I, I thought they should have kept it as as it was. and just showed, like, I really missed that gym because, you know, when we were playing, that was a 15-point difference in the game. So by the by time other teams just adjust to that size of that gym, it was – it's too late. <laughs> um, and had and then the the crowd it was hot in there. Uh, each each corner of the gym was packed. The stands were packed. Uh, there was no room. I mean, Chili's. I don't know if they did it on purpose or accidentally, but players would trip over them. And we're like, hey, you gotta know where you're going. Uh, crashing into the walls. You know, you had to brace yourself. We knew how to do that. You know, so um, I was very. Uh, upset about when they decided they were going to like just get rid of the gym so um 
what I did, and my wife was helping me with this. I said, well, we're going to cut out the circle of the gym. I don't care what else you do with it. I don't care how much it costs. I want to keep at least the middle of the gym. So we, yeah. the B, and uh, we finally, first they, was going to, they say, well, it costs $30,000. I said, well, I can get out there and chop it up. <laughs> I don't care. So, so what we did, with, we found, found a way. It didn't cost $30,000. Uh, they had to do some things with the floor anyhow. So we got the B. As you're going to the new gym, you see the B on the side. And we just got to try to figure out what we can do. We probably just put what we accomplished those during those years of that on that floor um so that was the one thing they had to grant me though i would i probably would have never stepped foot in that new gym <laughs> in my way <laughs> yeah so it, it, i was in that new gym the other day as i said and those those championship banners are obviously hanging up in there but uh, what about you, Nick? What, what was it like playing in, in that in that old gym? Uh, I mean, I, I personally saw some just electric games in there. That's the only way I can explain it. But I can only imagine what it was like being on the court, two-point game, packed to the gills. Talk a little bit about playing in that gym because it was really a unique experience. It's, it's home. Um, and first of all, you know, you're never going to let somebody come in your house, you know, push you around and give any orders. So, you know, we had to lay the law down. You know, but more importantly, it was – looking around, you know, seeing our families, seeing the people that, you know, mentored us and, and the people we looked up to and then looking up and seeing the tradition, you know, all of the banners uh, hanging on the walls. So that was uh, motivation in itself every day. Um, but, you know, more importantly, it was uh, the work we put in when nobody was there that spoke for what happened when everyone showed up. You know, our, our practices were tougher than games. So we felt prepared. And then uh, we hated to lose. I know me personally, you know, <laughs> I, tell, I hate to lose when I love to win. And uh, as much as it was a home court advantage for us, it also was uh, a state, you know, it was like, uh, you know, it boxes in, you know, in, in, in a sense, because we were small, we wanted to run, you know, but, you know, we hated to lose even more. So we almost disliked playing there from that standpoint of the, small size of the court, but we hated to lose even more. But the love that we, you know, felt and the energy from our peers, our community, our family, is unlike any other. And then we felt that same kind of uh, you know, embracement when we went out in the post to, you know, in the postseason, you know, to arenas and colleges and playing in Glens Falls, we were the media dollars. So that felt like home all in itself. Mm -hmm. But it's no place like the VI. Mm -hmm. Never will be. <laughs> Um, so we talked a lot about history here, obviously, but but what what about the future of basketball on the East End? And maybe we can get you guys out of here on this. Uh, Nick, you, you you've been involved in, in coaching lately, and, and likely we'll get back into it. Um, Carl, I don't know if, if if you found your new spot at the middle school level, but you, you talk about consistency over the years. You know, East Hampton had Coach Petrie. Uh, Southampton's got Herm Lamison. You know, Bridgehampton had you all those years. Um, What's the what's the landscape here on the East End for basketball, and is it is it different than than it was in the eighties or the nineties? Uh, and 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 do you, when's that next you know great team going to come out? Whether it's out of Bridgehampton or, or one of our other local schools. Um, right now, I think it, the the problem is I, I'm not like a such a proponent of the, you know of the AAU clubs. I mean, I I think. If the kids, I, I'm, I'm uh, 
proponent of team first, summer league. Then if you want to go out of the AU, then you, that should be your last option. I think now it's reverse. So East End basketball is becoming more and more difficult. And that might have to do with housing. Housing is a big problem where most of your people can't stay out here, can't afford to live out here. So they have to move west. So it's depleting the talent pool. Mm. And I think if people just don't think that's happening, they better wake up because it really is. You know, you look at a team like East Hampton, where have how many students? I don't know. They have a thousand. And you mean tell me that uh, he's struggling every every year to get fill a, a competitive team? Herm, uh, this year he had he's 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 got a great talent pool, but most of those kids are from the reservation. What if they hadn't renewed the contract to go to Southampton School? Would he have that same team? I mean, I looked at his team, and I think only two kids weren't from the reservation. Um, Pearson seems to have a solid squad right now, you know, because it's always cycles. But Pearson has a solid squad. But next year, after that, that this they have he has like seven guys graduating next year. What happens with his pro? You know, Bridgeham, we're lucky we have three young, great players. But what? How do we fit those pieces in? Because we don't, you know, around them. Uh, so East End basketball. This is hopefully we can keep it alive. But it's looking very bleak right at this point. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's a dead, it's going to die, but it's going to be competitive. It's going to make it, these teams be more competitive. It's going to be more difficult. Well, Carl, as we find um, every every podcast that we do, no matter the topic, ends up in an affordable housing issue. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I think it's a theme. You know, I don't know if it's I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't, don't be sorry. Unless you can solve it. it, it it's, it's absolutely true. And and, and uh, it's a great point. But Nick, I'm just curious to hear from you. Uh, you know, as someone who who coached recently at Center Riches, which which isn't on the East End per se, but it's in the neighborhood. Um, and, and you've been very involved in the local basketball program. Do you see similar things to Carl? Do you, is it just that team's just going to pop up out of uh, one year, that, that great team out of nowhere, that great kid who might be out there? What are you seeing for the future here of East End basketball? Um, you know, beyond, you know, what he said, I think, you know, kids just don't play enough. Um, you know, just a quick story. People always talk about, you know, Maurice Manley just came out of nowhere in a sense from his ninth grade year to be in the South. Uh, he was an unknown freshman. And by sophomore, he was first team all on Island. But coach used to have to threaten Maurice because every day after school, he would go to the center and play for an hour before we got to a game, even in practices. So no one has that same desire and work ethic um, that you, you see. Um, I think it starts with just uh, being more accessible, you know, to have that passion for the game. Um, and putting in the time, but you certainly, you know, there's other factors that these kids face, you know, and coming off of obviously the pandemic and stuff, that was a major setback. Uh, I know for me uh, personally, it was tough. In 2020, we were heading to Glens Falls and it was all set up, you know, for us to be there along with coach. So we would all won a state championship and celebrate him being in the Hall of Fame. Um, but those are some of the obstacles and hurdles that, you know, kids face nowadays. But, you know, that's part of being a, a competitor as well. You got to kind of face the challenge and, you know, continue to put in the work. And uh, that's that's going to be the difference, in, you know, how the basketball plays out. Well, that's that's the thing. I, I, I really think these kids I, – I see a lot of parents 
provide a lot of these opportunities for their kids. And maybe they provide too much for their kids. Um, maybe they should allow their kids to provide for themselves and then you put, then you help them along the way. Um, I've never seen so many kids have gym of gym time available for them. It wasn't available for me, available for me when I was in high school or it was either outdoors or you just, it was never a gym time unless it was season, during the season. Now kids have these opportunities and I don't think they're taking full advantage of these opportunities. How do you get kids excited about basketball or athletics in general? And like you said, there's, there's just so many different more opportunities for kids today. Everybody's on their screens or, or they're, you know, maybe involved in, in different, in different clubs. I think part of the, part of the tradition in, in Bridgehampton just had to do with that was that was what everybody was doing right and that was the option and that's how how people had had fun and followed their dreams and followed the passions of of their relatives and now there's just so much extra stimulus mm-hmm. out there for these kids how do you keep them interested in 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 basketball and sports well you know i think it, it takes the coach as as well as the player and the parents and we all can be on the same page about that commitment to something that a kid supposedly loves. And, and you know, like, you know, you, you, you made a good point. Oh man, TikTok is <laughs> Instagram and all that stuff. It's like, yeah. come on, or, or video games. I'm like, no, that's, you can't do that on the, you can do that on a video game, but you can't come in the gym and work on your game. You can't, you know, you can't see Steph Curry shoot. 10 in a row and think he just woke up one day and could say, oh, I can shoot 10 in a row. He's in that gym constantly working. So if you have a passion for something, you should want to like be try to be the best you can be at it. And and try not to have and make a commitment to it, you know, make a commitment to it. I I I'm not against people going on vacation, but once you commit to my basketball team and especially in high school, I expect you to be there. You can't go skiing in the middle of a season. <laughs> you know, you just can't. It's just not going to work. Is that fair to your your teammates, or is that fair to any? Or is that fair to your coach? You make a commitment to the team. You make a commitment for yourself, and I think that's where we get. That's where that's what's so lost. And trying to convince parents of that same situation is so difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so can I ask uh, who you're picking for the final four? It was UNC, but they never made it. <laughs> Long gone. But uh, you know what? I I like Tennessee a lot. I like Tennessee a lot. They grind it out. I like Tennessee. And then uh, everybody's, of course, everybody's picking Alabama, but I, I like Tennessee a lot. Annette, you know, since you were putting Coach uh, on a hot spot with the question, I got to put him on a hot spot. <laughs> coach, you got to tell me your all-time for champ starter. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be shocked at this one. You have to put Carl Yaz. <laughs> oh, that's Carl Yastrzemski, of course. <laughs> he, was a, he was a lead scorer for a long time. His record held... Up until for about 30, 40 years, <laughs> tell Troy Bow. I put Troy Bow. I mean, a Mo Manny, Bobby Hobson, uh, Gordon Johnson, Jerry Jones. Those are going to be my six. Wow. 
That's a tough spot to be. Yeah, has got to come off the bench, but he's the baseball Hall of Fame. <laughs> That's just the bridge you have to kill me. <laughs> Well, 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 it's, it's been a real honor, Carl, watching you over the years. And, um, you know, n not many guys get to say that they uh, that they got inducted into the Hall of Fame and coached that middle school basketball team to that first win <laughs> in the same season. So, uh, you know, th thank you for joining us today. And, uh, and Nick. Well, thank you, guys. It was such fun. I really, truly enjoyed this. Uh, <laughs> made me laugh, think about some good old times. Thanks again for having me, uh, Coach. Once again, thanks for everything, as always, for uh, paving the way, for your tutelage, your mentorship, from grooming me as a player to a coach. Um, I can't thank you enough, as always. Um, and I appreciate it. Once again, I'm proud of you, man. Thank you. Congratulations on your induction. Thank you so much. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.